You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. Uh, My name is Mike M. I oversee home groups here at Citizens Church. Um, If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We'll be in the book of James, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Just three little verses. I thought it'd be easy to write this sermon. Was not to be. We are a few weeks into a new series on James. Uh, It is a letter written by one of the brothers of Jesus. Um, A few weeks ago, Jonathan Dodson walked us through the trials, the tests of faith. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And last week, Jamin walked us through how to ask for wisdom when we face these trials. But he also reminded us of something, that the offer itself, the offer of, if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. That offer itself is a kind of a test. Do you know that you need God's wisdom enough to ask for it? Do you know that you're a fool without God's wisdom? And when you ask God, are you asking with your whole heart? Do you believe that God has wisdom, that only God has wisdom? Or are you double-minded? With two souls, trying to live in more than one direction at once. Today's passage seems really out of place. It takes a hard right turn. All of a sudden, James is talking about money and death. It's a little bit jarring. And then if you look at verse 12 and following, he goes right back to talking about trials and tests again. What are these three verses doing here? They're not out of place. What James is going to propose is a trial, a test of faith. Perhaps the trial, the test of faith that all of us will face, and that is this. What is your attitude towards money and the people who have it and the people who don't? Again, what is your attitude towards money and the people who have it and the people who don't? My sermon today has four points. We're gonna talk about the problem, we're gonna talk about the pursuit, we're gonna talk about the promise, and then we will talk, of course, about the gospel. First, the problem. There's a problem with this passage. Right? I've already talked about it. Fits weird. Okay? It's a little strange. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. You might expect this to say something like this. If you're lowly, let the lowly brother, if you're lowly, that word lowly in the Greek, tapinos, it means poor, humble, suffering, downcast, afflicted. If you're lowly, then hang on. Trust the promises of God. Endure, be steadfast, right? That's what you expect it to read. But instead, it says something bizarre. Boast, boast in your exaltation, in your glory. You're lifted high. What are you talking about? I don't, I don't have anything. I can't even make rent. While much of James's language comes from meditating on the words of his brother, Jesus, This language actually most reminds me 
that he was probably meditating on the words of his mother, Mary. In the first chapter of Luke, Luke records what is known as Mary's song, also known as the Magnificat. Luke 1, 46 through 48. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. The word humble there is the same Greek uh, root. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. Luke 1, 52 and 53. He has toppled the mighty from the houses and exalted the lowly. Those are the same words. He has exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Part of what James is asking you when he says to boast in your exaltation when you're low is when you look at yourself, when you look at the world, when you look at those around you, do you see the way the world does or the way God does? When you see yourself, do you see yourself as low, as lost, as a loser? Would you have seen my mother that way? Poor Mary. What a hard life. She suddenly got pregnant at about 15 or 16 with no explanation, having to travel on the road at nine months pregnant, giving birth in someone's garage, living a life barely scraping by her whole life, a life of trial after trial after trial. Poor Mary. But Mary did not see herself that way. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She counts it all joy. Now, I want to point out something that sometimes it's easy to miss. The New Testament is not a musical. What I mean by that is, when you get to this passage about Mary and she starts singing, you know, you can kind of be tempted to think she, like, just came up with the song on the spot and, like, dancers come out and, you know, and you're like, wait, did you guys all practice this? How do you know the words already, you know? And they're all singing and then, she, like, it's like, da-da, and it's done. And then, like, she goes on her way and she forgets about the song and I guess somebody with really good, really good memory, like, wrote it down. That's, you know, there was no Spotify. There was no, like, people just do that back then. Um, part of what may have occurred, and this is using sanctified imagination here. This doesn't say in the text, but what may have happened is that she sang the song more than once. This may have been a song that filled their home again and again, that James grew up hearing this. My soul magnifies the Lord. He exalts the lowly. Hearing his mother, counting all joy, the trials of her life. Every time things get hard, she turns to the Lord. She's teaching him again and again that God's heart is near to the lowly, to the brokenhearted. And why is that? Why is God's heart tender for the lowly, the downtrodden, the abused, the abandoned, and the poor? In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, the only place where Jesus describes the inner working of his own heart, this is what he says. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. That's the same word in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. God's heart is for the lowly, and he exalts the lowly because God's very heart is lowly. 
Let the lowly believer boast. Let him count it as all joy because God is near to you. He will lift you up. But then it goes to an even weirder place. It says, and then let the rich boast in his humiliation. This is also a little odd. You'd think when you get to the rich, you might hear something like this in church. Let the rich, if you had a good year this year, let the rich give thanks to God. Stay humble. Don't get a big head. God's blessed you. Be a blessing. Share your fortune. It doesn't say that. It says, let the rich boast in his humiliation. What does that mean? What's humiliating about being rich? And then James goes to explain why you should boast in your humiliation. And it gets even stranger because like a flower of the grass, you will pass away for the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You boast in your humiliation because you're going to die soon. Probably while you're on a business trip. What is that? How does that explain this passage? Okay. So this brings us to where he's driving us. Why is it written this way? What is the point of this strange little passage in the midst of this trial section? Okay. It's about the pursuit. What are you pursuing? James talks about money in four out of the five chapters. We'll see in the beginning of chapter two, he talks about um, the way you treat a poor man who comes into your uh, worship service and a rich man who comes into your worship service. And one guy, you're like, hey, call security. And the other guy, oh, come on up here. You could be a donor, right? And then in the second half of chapter two, um, there is, he says, the way that you treat the needy. Do you actually help them? Or do you just say, thoughts and prayers, Bless your heart and walk on by. He says that reveals something about dead faith and living faith. In chapter 4, he talks about people who make plans to make profit and travel here and there, not knowing that God is calling them. And then chapter 5, I'm glad I don't have to preach it. It says, weep and howl, you rich. Fire is coming for you. What is going on here? You know, Jesus' heart is for the lowly. He speaks many promises to the lowly, the poor, the downtrodden. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. How beautiful is that? But Jesus also speaks about wealth. He speaks about possessions. He speaks about money almost more than any other topic. Luke 6, 24, a few verses later. But woe to you. Rich, for you have received your consolation. You've received your comfort. That's all you get. Luke 14, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, you cannot be my disciple. Luke 18, 24, 25. Jesus, seeing that the rich young ruler had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Notice that Jesus singles out a rich person. He doesn't say it's harder for an alcoholic or a gambler or a drug addict or an adulterer or even a murderer. He says a rich person. 
Matthew 6, 19 through 21. If you grew up in church, this should be familiar to you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me be clear about something. The problem is not the money itself. No, the problem is something much deeper than that. As they say in recovery, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will go. Treasure has a kind of gravity, and you're either being pulled upward or downward. The treasure pulls at your heart, your soul. You cannot be double-hearted any more than you can be double-souled or double-minded. You cannot live in two directions at once, up and down. Why is that? Matthew 6, 24 tells us. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You can't be double-minded. You can't have double allegiances. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. No, you cannot serve God and money. Your heart is either for God or for money. You cannot serve both. The lies... One of the lies that we tell ourselves is that you can have it all. You can do both. And Jesus says, no. All right, what are we talking about here? All right, let me try to begin to untangle this knot. Okay. If I ask you, how can a person serve God? Just think of some answers. How can a person serve God? Pray, sing, go on a missions trip, serve the poor, be kinder to your children, right? You, you can immediately think of things. Maybe I should serve on the parking team. You know, we always need more kids, volunteers, right? So, easy. Let me ask you this. How does someone serve money? I've never sung to my money. I don't know if any of you do that, right? I don't pray to my money. I don't ever worry that my money is happy or unhappy with me that the wrath of money will come upon me, that money will accept me or reject me. I never worry about that. How do I serve money? How can you serve money? I get serving God. The way you serve money is by pursuing it, the same way you serve God. You can either say to God or you can say to money something like this. I need you in my life. I don't have enough of you. Without you, I don't feel safe. You are the one who gives me security. You are the one who gives me meaning. You are the one who unlocks the keys to joy. I will never be whole without more of you. The way you serve money, the way you serve God is by organizing your entire life, all your time and your priorities to get more of God or to get more of money and to keep from losing which, what little you already have. You think about it all the time. How do I protect this? How do I keep this? How do I get more? If you are pursuing after money, you will look at other people who have more money than you, and you will say, what are they doing that I'm not doing? What are the books that they're reading? What are the podcasts they're listening to? Who are the people they're hanging out with? What are their habits? Do I need to wake up earlier? Do I need to go sleep 
later, I will do all of that stuff. Do I need different friends? I will do that. And that's the same thing if you want to pursue God. What are the people around me who are near to the Lord? What are they doing that I'm not doing? What are their practices, their disciplines? Do they get up early? Do they go to sleep later? Do they read different books than I am reading? Are they listening to something different? What is that? I want that. Tell me. Whatever I'm not doing, I will start doing that. Do you say that about God or do you say that about money? You can pursue God or money, but never both. Why? Why are they so counter? It's because God and money promise the same thing. And one of them turns out to be a liar. And you will either accuse God or money of being deceitful. John chapter 10, verse 9 through 10, Jesus says this. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, steal kill, and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Guess what? Money promises the same thing. Money says, I'm the door. If you enter through me, you will be safe. And you can travel freely here and there, wherever you want, and you will have green pastures. You can eat your fill. You'll never go hungry. If you want abundant life, you need me. Without me, you will die. Money promises you life and life abundant. But more than that, money promises that you can be like God. It's the same promise that was made in the garden. You know, we live in the richest time of all of human history. This is the richest time that has ever been. And we also live in the richest place in the world, the United States. The GDP of the United States is greater than the next three countries combined, China, Germany, Japan. The United States makes up 25.4% of the entire economic activity of the world. We also live in Texas, the second wealthiest state in the United States. If Texas was its own country, we would be the eighth largest economy in the world, surpassing Australia and Canada and South Korea and Russia. I know you don't feel like it, but you're super rich. And what do we do with our great wealth? It pushes on our human limitations. This is the promise of wealth, right? Instead of being limited to one place, the internet allows me to live in Texas and trade stocks in New York, be on a Zoom call in France and order things directly from a factory in China. The internet promises me omnipresence. I can be everywhere. Right before the nine, as I was coming up on the stage, I got an alert on my phone. Someone was at my door dropping something. I was like, who's this at my house? I'm, I'm here, but I'm also there. I'm everywhere, right? <laughs> and now with AI, you can... Say whatever you want, like, hey, I want a picture of a duck riding a, a tricycle on top of a cake playing a trombone, and boom, you have it, half a second later, right? Artists will be able to say to AI, let there be light, and there will be light. We will create entire worlds, and with the promise of VR, you can live there. In the book of Job, when Job begins to question God, why is this happening to me? God tells him, okay, hold on. 
dressed for action like a man, I will ask you questions and you will answer me. He asks him a bunch of different questions to show him his place. But one of the questions that God asks Job, Job chapter 39, verse 1, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you deserve, uh, observe the calving of the does? Hey, Siri, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Kids are born in the spring. Late May. Mountain goats occur from the Yukon and Alaska This answer is from Wikipedia. Yeah, so kids are born in the spring. Late May, early June, after six-month gestation period. You got, what else you got, God? I got Wikipedia. You know, there used to be a time for you younger people, you could wonder something and never know. One time I was just wondering, like, I wonder how many different kinds of tomatoes there are. And I somehow activated my watch and said, there are over 10,000 varieties of a tomato. I was like, I wasn't even actually asking. Oh, that's crazy, you know. <laughs> right? Do you observe the calving of the does? Yes, I've seen planet Earth, right? <laughs> Omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. You can be everywhere, know anything do almost anything. If you have enough money, if you're a multi-billionaire, what limitations do you have? Do the laws of the United States constrain you? Does international law constrain you? Do the laws of nature even begin to constrain you? That's, where, that's what we're pushing for. We want to be like God. And that's why James says what he says. In his love, in his gentleness, he says, like a flower of the grass, you will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits, in the midst of his business. He's saying, listen, brother, the best way that I can help you is this. Remember that you are not God. When you're wealthy, it's so easy to forget that you are a creature and not the creator. That's because the promise of money is the same as the promise that was made by the serpent to Adam. Even though you're a man, you can be like God. You can grasp equality with God. Let me pause here for a second. There are two errors that can arise as you're listening to me. There's two errors in thinking about our relationship with money. Some people tend to under-spiritualize these verses. They tend to under-spiritualize these teachings, all of these various verses about money. It's, and they focus on the money itself. Forgetting that the Bible never condemns anyone simply for being rich, simply for being successful, simply for being wealthy. And so our response shouldn't be an emotional one. Okay, I guess I better go home and sell my house and, and my car and, and, and just get all my stuff and I'll just take a vow of poverty and just live in the dirt. And then maybe God will like, you know, pass over me, right? He won't notice. Maybe he'll be okay. That's not what James is getting at. That's not the main thing he's focused on. To think you should be ashamed of yourself for having money and kill all the rich people, right? Like that's not his main point in and of itself. It's not the money, it's what it represents. It's the pursuit and the promise of money that is so deadly. G James and Jesus are concerned with what money represents spiritually. We'll get to what that is in a second. But there's a second error, and I think this is more common where we live. And then we can quickly over-spiritualize it. Money, 
You might have heard money is the root of all evil, and, and some of you who are more studied will be like, ah, oh, wait, no, no, it's not money that's the root of all evil, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil, or all kinds of evil, in fact, right? And, and the Bible never condemns anyone from being rich, so it's, it's fine, it's morally neutral, it should be okay, God is totally fine with me pursuing wealth. And we just make it about the condition of our heart. Luke chapter 6 says, blessed are the poor. And you're like, ah, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Neither James nor Jesus is saying that money is inherently evil. That is absolutely true. Money is not inherently evil. But they are saying something. Money is inherently dangerous. Money is not inherently evil. It's inherently dangerous because it's inherently intoxicating. There are some kinds of intoxication that I think are pretty easy. If someone's addicted to methamphetamines or crack or heroin, like after a period of time, you can kind of tell just by looking at them. They begin to wither away. Their teeth are, you know, looking strange, right? But if someone's addicted to money, you're like, that guy looks better than before. <laughs> You've been eating? What are you, you're working out? You're looking good. Yeah, you're a personal trainer. You know, oh, man, yeah. And so it's very seductive. It's hard to tell. It's very sneaky because it's inside your heart. Money is not inherently evil, but it's inherently dangerous, and only a fool thinks he can play with it unscathed. That what we're supposed to do is not be afraid of money or hate money. We're supposed to be suspicious of it. You cannot pursue both God and money because their kingdoms are in opposite directions, and one is forever and the other is fading, and where your heart gets pulled to, that's what's going to happen to you. It's really important not to over-spiritualize this because it's true that God wants more than your pocketbook. He wants more than your bank account. He wants more than your spending habits, but he doesn't want any less than those things. It does matter how you spend your money. It does matter where you're giving generously. It does matter how you move your money around. That does absolutely matter. He does care about your finances. It's more than that, but it's not less. One of the major trials, one of the major tests of your life will be how you relate to money. Either you will not have money and you will crave it and that will kill you. Or you'll have lots of it and you'll come to depend on it and rely on it and place your security on it and that will kill you. James knows that more than almost anything else, money has the power to tempt believers to become double-minded to become two-faced, to become two-souled. And so he counsels the rich to focus on their lowliness. He's not saying, hate yourself, you're the worst, right? But he's saying, take an account. Account yourself the way God accounts. Listen to Jesus' words to the seventh church in Revelation. It is a church that became double-minded in the pursuit of money. Revelation 3, 15 through 19. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. No. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Let the rich boast in his humiliation is not condemnation for the believer. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is an invitation. See yourself. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask, but you need to know that you're poor to ask. So the question to ask yourself is this. Do you see the world the way God sees the world? Do you see the poor the way God sees the poor? The wealthy the way God sees the wealthy, your business, your home, your retirement fund, do you see those things the way God sees it? Or do you look at it the same way everybody else does? Jesus said the Gentiles chase after these things, but it shouldn't be that way with you. Are you like a Gentile? Finally, let's move on to the gospel. I imagine some of you feel a little beaten up by this, right? You're in good company. I just want to encourage you. No one gets through the book of James unscathed. He's got a little bit of something for everybody, okay? This is, I've struggled with this. I started writing this thing in uh, December. This is my eighth sermon on this that I wrote. Because every time I would go into it, I'm like, I got this. And then I would feel cut to the heart. James, what do you want me to do? I've got a house I've got two cars. I put myself into the Am I Rich calculator. It says I'm in the top 2% of people in the world and then top 0.3% of people who've ever lived. That's me. I don't feel rich. My car out there I bought because I Googled cheapest car in America. (laughs) So let me tell you what I didn't do. I didn't sell my house this week. What I did do is re-examine my heart. Where are the areas that I'm organizing my life to try to get more money, but I'm not doing that with God? Is my giving reflecting joyful and confident gospel generosity? Or does it reflect my fearful clinging onto money, the clinging that belongs to Christ alone? This passage is intended to sift the soul. I beg you not to pass by too quickly. You need to let it do its work. Now, we've talked about the problem of money. We talked about the pursuit of money. We talked about the, prob- uh, the promise of money, but I want to end with the gospel, the promises of God. I told you earlier that money promises many of the same things that only God can give. One of the, one of the promises of money is the promise from the garden. Even though you're just a man, you can grasp equality with God. And the good news of the gospel is that whether you need to be saved from having too much money and relying on it, or be saved from craving money because you don't have it right now. God does not expect you to save yourself. How can we be saved from fading away with our foolish pursuits when all of us are grasping at equality with God? Philippians 2 said that while we were doing that, Jesus was doing the opposite. It says that Jesus, although he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead of enriching himself, he emptied himself. Money lies to you saying, man can become like God. But the gospel tells you the truth, that God became a man. Money tells you, if you want me, you need to make something of yourself. 
But the gospel says Jesus wanted you, and so he made himself nothing. Money tells you, if you have me, you'll never have to serve anyone. In fact, they will serve you. But the gospel tells us that Jesus became a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Money tells you that you need to be exalted, you need to chase fame, you need to be lifted high. And Jesus, he humbled himself, and so therefore God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That is why the so-called prosperity gospel is not a variation of the gospel at all, is the anti-gospel. The way that we relate to money as Christians needs to be distinctive in the world, shocking to the world, and the way that Jesus' words shock people even to this day. How do we do that? If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God, who gives generously without reproach. Without reproach. He's not mad at you for asking, for not knowing what to do. It will be given to you. Let me close with this. This is, what we're, this is what we place our hope on, even when we fall short. Remember this again and again as we go through the book of James. It's not about us, it's about him. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we ask for wisdom. We are a foolish people. We're so easily led astray like sheep without a shepherd. Oh, Lord, you said you're the good shepherd. Lord, gather us together. Lord, guide us with your hand. Lord, lead us by still waters. God, we ask that you would give us satisfaction in you and you alone, God. I pray that the lowly brother, lowly sister, would be able to boast in their exaltation, that they would see themselves the way you see them, as beautiful, as chosen, as precious, as blood-bought. I pray that those of us in here, Lord, who, are, who feel good, we're insulated from suffering, God, I pray that you would bring us close to your heart, your lowly heart, that we would boast in our identification with our gentle and lowly Savior, God, that we would draw near to those you draw near to, Lord, help us to see the world as you see it. Lord, to account things the way you account them. For your glory and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.